continue. Letter of Paul's to his church in Rome. He's been hammering away at the doctrine of justification by faith alone, being declared righteous in the sight of God after telling us that we're all lost and fall short of the glory of God and are without hope in the world except for this declaration of righteousness given to us by Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin reading in verse 5 of, of chapter 5. Verse 6 begins with, for while, so we need to know what he's talking about, what you just remember from last week. So let's pray for the reading of God's word. Father God, we pray that as we read God's word, to hold it in our hands, and we take it and just as the believer through faith does with the Lord's Supper. We, we hold you in our hands. We take you in our mouths. We take you into our very persons. You give yourself to your children in the preaching and hearing of your word, especially in the preaching and hearing in the church. So we pray that you would feed us through what we hear and that you would continue to help us understand the great blessing that's ours and that faith even comes by hearing and you call others out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light that they too may worship in spirit and truth. And this we pray, a great blessing on your reading of your word in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we ask now, how has this love of God been poured into our hearts? And how has he loved us? And this is what he tells us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Lord, pray now for the preaching of your word that I would have your holy unction, that your word would sustain what is said, and that I would only say the things that are um, applicable to us from your word, that we would hear these things, receive these things, and that those, the listeners, would be able to drive out distractions from their minds, and that we too would be able to to worship you by giving great attention to these things. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So Jesus Christ has proved God's love for us. Um, there's a word show or demonstrate, depending on your translation. The, um, the CSB, I can't remember what that stands for. The Christian Standard Bible, is that the one the, the Baptists are celebrating currently? So it's, um, it has used the words proved, because that's another... A way that that word can be translated into English. But that's our, our first thing we're going to look at here is proof of God's love for us. You could say demonstration of God's love for us or God shows his love for us. But it's this, this proof 
of God's love for us is really a good way of looking at what he's saying here. So these verses 6 through 8 are where he really fleshes out this idea of how God has shown, demonstrated, proven his love for us. Now, as you look at these verses, in the, in, and I talk about Greek probably more than most of you would like, but um, we do have a translation in our hands, and one of the things that you can miss in a translation from one language to another is word order. And in Greek, word order is like really important. So you put the first word at the beginning of a sentence because you know Greek is like Yoda. Important, important. This word is. You know, it's, it's the way he talks in order to emphasize certain thoughts at the beginning. But another way to do it, especially in writing, um, is to put uh, like in these in these verses six, seven, eight. The word dead or died is at the end of each one of these sentences. So that the way you would read it when you're reading it in Greek, in English, we'll do the word order, verses 6, 7, and 8 would end like this. For the ungodly, he died. For a good person, perhaps someone would dare to die. Christ, for us, died. And you can kind of hear, it's, like they're, it's clear if you read it, you don't have to know that about word order to be able to pick up on the fact that he's emphasizing Christ's death for us. But it's, it is really emphasized in this passage, Christ's death for us. So these verses are not only telling us that God saved us because we were worthy of salvation. So you have to really kind of get that idea. Um, he did, God did not save us because of something we did to earn, to merit, to latch hold of, to open the door to. You know, it's not God on the outside knocking on our hearts to see if we will open the door of salvation unto him because that's the opposite of what is being taught in these verses. We're called three things in these verses. Weak, ungodly, sinners. These verses are telling us about God's love for us, not about our love for him. There's places that talk about our love for him. This is not one of those places. This is talking about God's love for the church, the believer, for those who are in Christ, whom this is being written to. So as us as a church, who we are hoping and praying, everyone here does really hold to the faith that they confess that you are loved by God. You have been loved by God. And not because of anything you did. Certainly not, I mean, just look at us, not because of something that, that, you know, we look better than anybody else. We did something that you might think, I prayed the prayer, I said the repentance, I walked the aisle, I did the thing, I did that. That was all a result of God's work, lavishing his love on you. That is why you did these things. This word weak might throw you off a little bit, threw me off a little bit, and I was like, weak, weak, weak means I just can't, I mean, I, I, can, I, I, I can move this. I didn't plan to do that. I, I can move this thing. If I'm weak, I, probably, I can still get it to move. I figure it out. So weak just sounds like you kind of can do it. You just, you know, you're kind of wimpy. You just have trouble with it. But the word in Greek again, here we go, is powerless. It's actually strengthless is the word. We are strengthless. The, the, the alpha privative at the beginning is ah, strength. You're without strength. So it's not that I'm weak. Is that I have any strength. So you know what, maybe, you know what that feels like. You, you lie in a bed sick or you're out. You, you, are, you are without strength. You, you're helpless. Um, Paul, talking about the similar thing in the letter to the Ephesians in 
chapter 2, 1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He's just saying the same thing, but you, you really can't get more helpless than that. He's just in that verse just saying, hey, when I mean helpless, I'm talking about dead. Nothing you can do. Powerless, utterly without hope that you are unable to do anything. Now, this is known in Reformed theology as, as moral inability. Sometimes you might hear, you know, total depravity. And what's that mean? You know, it's just, you know, we're, we're um, radical corruption, that, that we are sinners at the root of who we are. And we kind of get that. But one of the things that you also have to understand that that means is that we are morally incapable of doing anything to move God towards us or for us even to reach out to a gift that he's giving us and saying, if you just accept this, then you can have it. I don't want it any more than somebody could give you something nasty and you desire to put it into your mouth. It's like, no, I don't want this. R.C. Sproul says belief in God is not a logic problem, it's a moral problem. And this is why some of the times if you catch yourself trying to debate people about the existence of God, you might can get somebody to, to admit a logical necessity for an unmoved mover, as Aristotle called it, as, as a, a, the, the first thing, you know, something, nothing comes from nothing, ex nihilo nihil fit, out of nothing, nothing comes. And if you get somebody who's just going to be logical and they're going to be fair about it, they might would say, I believe there has to be some God somewhere. And you might walk away thinking, awesome, his name's Jesus. And you walk away. I just saved one. That's one. You didn't save anybody. You just got them to admit some logical necessity that's going to make not necessarily any um, point in their lives and certainly not going to turn them to the necessity of being saved from something. Not that these aren't good things to do. But that's not the preaching of the gospel. It is a defense of the gospel. It's uh, giving somebody perhaps a reason for the hope that's within you. You might have different reasons for why you believe what you believe. But we have to be very careful about these things because when it comes to uh, admission of our sin before a holy God and admitting our need for Jesus Christ, that's on a whole nother level of thought. And so if you've done, I, I want to write a book one day. I shouldn't say it out loud. Take me offline a minute called Facebook Apologetics. And um, just because on, if you, if you, and it was years ago, a little bit more than it is now, but if you go on social media and you try to talk about God, you will find that, and I used to have a list of these things, like in the course of a day, I was expected to be an expert in geology, cosmology, morality, um, physics, every, whatever thing you can think of, because they'll throw at you what um, in, in logic is called defeater beliefs. A defeater belief is a thing, it's like, well, I can't believe in that thing over there because I don't believe in this. Okay, so I don't believe dead, the dead can rise, a dead person can come back to life, therefore I can't believe Jesus came back to life. So then you have, well, your defeater belief is the fact that you don't accept miracles. And so you have to be careful of these things because everybody has all kinds of things that they've set up in order to keep people, keep themselves from being able to confess anything that would lead them to admit that they're in need of a Savior God. Paul writes that in Romans 1.18. It says, men suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So people suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And then it says, and God gives them over to this sin. 
So they're in a helpless, hopeless condition. So we say, what about us, the Christians, the believers? Does God just wait for us to demonstrate our love for him before he will apply salvation to us? No, emphatically no. God shows us his love for us while we were still helpless, godless sinners. Helpless, godless sinners. So believer, child of God. Do you ever wonder about God's love for you? So what Paul is saying is, look to the cross. Do you ever wonder about God's love for you because of difficult circumstances? And Paul says, look to the cross. Or perhaps you wonder whether God loves you because you see your sin. You see how awful you are. And how can God ever love you? And he says, look to the cross. Because the cross proves his love for us. And look at what verses 6 through 8 say in response to that. While we were still weak, helpless, dead, at the right time. And when's the right time? (laughs) At that moment, in the fullness of time, God comes. But while we were still sinners, not waiting for us to no longer be sinners because that wasn't going to happen. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Some group called the ungodly. There's not one person that's saved that is godly. So he dies for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows, demonstrates, proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, weak and godless, Christ died for us in our place. So note in verse 8, God is God the Father. He shows his love for us. So God the Father. So we tend to think sometimes mistakenly that Jesus is the one that loves us. God the Father just needs to have his wrath placated. Good thing he stays inside and plays and we're outside. And, you know, you got a daddy inside that's just volatile. You know, thank goodness Jesus Christ came and saved us from him. But that's not what happened. God the Father loves us. We have a good, loving, heavenly Father because it says here, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how, is, how does Christ dying for us demonstrate God's love for us? Now, I know Jesus is God, but in the, the way of speaking in the Scriptures, uh, the Lord is a name of divinity, uh, but Lord Jesus Christ, Christos, Mashiach is king. So we've got the divinity of Jesus that's being taught too. He's God. But when the word God is used, particularly by Paul in his writings, he's talking about God the Father, and he's talking about God the Son. He says, Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus or Christ or Lord. So how does God demonstrate his love for us in the death of Jesus? It's because, as we've seen and Paul's already demonstrated, God sent his Son. So before the foundations of time, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit counseled together and decided to save sinners to, to, to their glory, to God's glory. And this is what, how God is demonstrating his love towards the church, is by sending his son. Jesus demonstrates his love to the church by saying, here I am, send me. And he comes to the church and all that the Father gives to him will come to him and then God the Father presents to his son a bride without spot or wrinkle. 
And Jesus says this is all to the glory of God the Father, so that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But this is how we know that God loves us. So that the glory is to God, not to us, not to us, but to God be the glory. So first, we have proof of God's love for us. Secondly, we see that we are saved from wrath. And that's in verse 5, 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by, I'm sorry, we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. So again, you know, this verse, we've now been justified, that means legally declared innocent, righteous before God, by his blood, which is another way of speaking of Christ's death and pointing back to all the Old Testament sacrifices and that um, only the life is in the blood and sin can only be forgiven with the shedding of blood, all pointing to Jesus Christ so that in him all the promises of God are yes and amen. But notice that we, believers in him, are now presently justified. So this isn't something we're waiting for eventually so that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and it's like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And all of heaven and earth waits and he says, righteous. It's already been declared before all heaven and all earth has been declared righteous. Else we couldn't be adopted. We couldn't come into his table. We could not exist in his kingdom, in the kingdom of God. The flaming swords of, of Eden uh, stop anything unholy, unclean from going in because anything unclean in the midst of holiness will have to be consumed and destroyed. And now we're made holy so that we're able to come into the heavenly places. The curtain has been ripped in too. We're able to, in Christ, present ourselves before God, even in the heavenly places. As he comes down into our world, um, even now as he's among us, and in his supper, it says, I'm here with you. I see you left all the juice labels on there. I, I, I was like, pick one. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Sorry, inside thing happening here. Um, I just looked down at the table. Um, but we are presently justified. So how much more will we be saved future from the wrath? Okay, so there's two aspects of salvation. Well, there's actually three. We are saved, being saved, and will be saved. If you read the Bible and you pay attention to it, you'll see that. I have been saved. I am saved. I am being saved, you will see. We are being saved, and I will be saved. The best analogy I've heard for it is uh, you're on a ship, it's sinking, and you see the rescuers, and you say, we're saved, and you are. But it's still going down, and they're still coming. So, you know, here you go. Then you get on this ship, and it's like, and we're, taking, we're being saved, you know, being taken back, and then you make it to land. We are saved. We will be saved. You know, that's the whole thing. I am saved, being saved, and we will be saved. And this is the way that it's spoken of in scriptures because there is a day coming when God will judge the world in righteousness and holiness. And what, God, what Paul is saying here is we will be saved from that because we have now been justified. More than being justified, we will be saved from wrath, from the wrath of God. So that when we ask the question, saved from what? Because salvation, by definition, means to rescue from some calamity. You know, we'll, we'll mess around with somebody, and you push them, like you're at the pool, and you go, oh, saved you. 
You know, it's like as if you've, I've saved you from drowning, you know, but you're the one that pushed me. It's like, no, but that's just a little joke we play. Um, if you, your house is burning and you're saved from the fire, it means somebody saved you from this calamity. So salvation is from some calamity. So when we're talking about, somebody would say, are you saved? Have you been saved? Um, the question is that a person who is unaware of the gospel should ask, maybe to be saved from what? And then you have to ask, answer, Hopefully, biblically, say from what? And you have to ask yourself, don't shout it out loud, what would you say? And hopefully, from just having read this verse, it's from the wrath of God. So that's what you have to be saved from, not from poverty, not from lack of education, not from your you know, stupidity, not from you know, the, the other countries that are coming in to do things. You need salvation, and the salvation that God provides is from his wrath, which is to come. And that's why he had to send Jesus. The calamity that we're all facing would be the final judgment of God, in which all sinners will experience the wrath of God. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and is angry with the wicked every day. If you want to start an argument in a group, in some social media group, or just in some Bible study, Sunday school, somewhere out there, and you want to say, maybe even in here, um, what are we saved from? Or you want to say, you know, I've talked about this, because it keeps coming up in Paul, this idea that, you know, um, God doesn't elect people, God doesn't choose people, because God loves everybody equally. God loves everybody. And it's like, well, then you have to be able to say, well, what do you do with this verse? That God is angry with the, the wicked every day, that he's a righteous judge. Because what people do is people judge God by how they see him supposedly, how they judge him to be acting in their world. And that's fair enough. So uh, a lot of people would cling to the message as they read the Bible and want to see it, that God loves everybody. Because you can see passage, God so loved the world, and things like this. You know, so that you see, look, does it appear as if God's wrath is being poured out on the wicked you know, any differently than upon the church. You know, do you see people that are non-believers obviously receiving worse things from the hand of God and believers are receiving obviously good things from the hand of God? Now, there are churches that teach that, that if you just had enough faith, you would see the riches of God, that you would get these material blessings, that you will see that difference. But, you know, if you come to God for money, God is not your God, money is. So you have to be very careful with that kind of thing. But what they're missing is, this, this common grace of God. And I was listening to a White Horse Inn podcast this morning, and they talked about the common wrath of God, the common curse of God, too. So we live in a world that is cursed. There's a common curse over this whole world in which we all toil and deal with death and deal with difficulties. But there's also a common grace that withholds the judgment of God, that withholds the wrath of God, that enables the, the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked, which the Bible says, the rains fall on the righteous and the wicked. Um, David, even in one of his psalms, I think it's Psalm 73, he says, I, I look at, we sing it sometimes, I, I, I look at the wicked and they're prospering and I got jealous and I'm like, what are you doing? And he says, I was like a beast before you. I was ridiculous because I did not consider their end, that you've placed their feet on slippery places, but as for me, you've placed me on the rock. And this is what we do. We judge God's patience and think that it means it's always going to be that way. It will come to an end. God will, thank God, 
judge sin and do away with it and judge sinners and the demons in righteousness. And they will be cast into the lake of fire where they will be punished forever and ever. We should shudder at that thought because we are indeed saved from God, by God, and for God, solely Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. And so we have to think as we talk about hell, do we shudder at the thought of God's hell? Because we'll say in evangelism, you know, you stand before the gates of heaven and God were to say to you, why shall I let you into my heaven? What about God's hell? It is his. It is where he promises to put the wicked on the last day. And the Bible teaches that it's a never-ending punishment of the a righteous judgment of the wicked forever. If we did shudder at that thought, if we really took that thought to heart, then we would take the gospel way more seriously. We would take church far more seriously. We would take God far more seriously. We would be more zealous to seek to save the lost. As long as people are unconcerned about the wrath of God, they feel no need to come to Jesus. But how can we convince them of the coming wrath of God? You can't. That's out. Ain't going to happen. Dead in their sin, godless, without hope in the world. Because without faith, people are helpless, godless sinners. Sproul, again, quoting him, he writes, All of man's psychology is at work every minute to suppress full admission of his guilt and helplessness. All of man's psychology. I love to use that word because it's a very popular word today. It's another alternative salvation is psychology. So that we've got not that everything is wrong with psychology, but you don't get salvation from that. Well, you actually do get salvation from our psychology because man's fallen psychology. Think about it. In your mind, you know how you are, okay? Uh, <clears throat> you would tell yourself clearly, don't do that. Don't eat that. Don't think that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't. Well, I guess I'm doing it. <laughs> Is it? You know, you listen to yourself. I mean, how do you just talk yourself out of things? You don't. How messed up is that? <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, like two brains. One is like the, two, the Satan. And, you know, it's like, but you, you're, you, you tell, you have conversations with yourself. Yeah, it's, I have to stop doing that. I don't, please, God, don't let me do this again. You pray for things and you still do it. Even as believers, we're bad like this. So I hope you see within yourself a God working. But for the non-believer who's been given no faith, he's all the external grace has been given, the, the, the gospel has maybe even been preached, but without the working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, every ounce of their psychology is bent toward thwarting that from coming in. I think it's a C.S. Lewis, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the guys has been, is it, I won't even try the name, has been turned into a dragon. He's got scales. Maybe I'm mixing up a bunch of stories. Don't quote me on this. But he's got scales all over him, and um, he's going to um, remove the scales. God's going to remove these scales. He's got to turn them into a 
boy again. You got the idea being you're being transformed, you're being sanctified, and uh, he doesn't want it. it. Hurts is painful, so you're gonna fight against it. He's like it's the only way. If you want, it's it. It's the only thing you got is to have this removed. And so we do fight against our sanctification, but as we partake of the word, as we listen to the gospel, as we talk to one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, participate in the Lord's Supper, see baptism ministered to ourselves or to others, um, we see the beauty and the love of God in the land of the living, and then we're transformed by that into his likeness from one degree of glory to another when he's at work in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel. But you cannot convince an unconverted sinner, that he needs help to escape the wrath of God. But Paul writes, Romans 10, 17, we'll get to it later. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the word of Christ, the word of the gospel, is where faith comes from. And by this, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now there's a, a lot of people will say, well, it's not right to scare people into hell. You shouldn't use hell to scare people into the kingdom. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's not, you, you can't do that. That's not what anybody should be. I mean, people do try to do that. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, God, well, God doesn't tell us about hell to convert us. Okay, I mean, that's not why God's telling us about hell for our conversion. Um, we can tell everybody needs to, to know about hell, but... Jesus' teaching about hell, God's teaching about hell motivates us believers to praise for such a great salvation. I mean, look at from what you have been saved. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's not just being saved from, you know, after you die, you either get to live in a, in, a, in a tent or you get to live in a big, nice house. You know, pick one, and everybody's going to spend their place in one or the other. It's like, you know, I, I can deal with a tent after a while. But no, it's hell. Wrath, curse of God, or his pleasure, treasures, and glory. I mean, that, that, that's the two ends to human life. And that should produce praise, and it should motivate us to evangelism. I'm not expecting these guys out here who are non-believers to, to believe me when I'm telling them about hell, because what I've got to preach to them is, Jesus Christ. What about Jesus? He's come to save you from your sin. Well, I won't save from my sin. Well, you stand before a righteous God who on the last day will judge you righteously and the end of that will be hell. I'm here to present Jesus to you. Do you know your sin? Do you recognize your sin? Do you seek to be, do you, do you feel the call of God upon your life and you seek to be called and drawn to him? Do you, do you see and feel the need for God's salvation. And as you talk with somebody about the gospel, if you've got it in your heart, any, anything you're in love with, you, <clears throat> so some people, it's like, it's hard for, I feel uncomfortable evangelizing. Why? Because you don't like talking about things you love? I know you guys, you're as bad as I am. The trick's getting us to shut up, okay? Start talking about football. <laughs> I don't know, who's your, I, I, well, who's your, who's your team? The Eagles, right. <laughs> Would you, could you come up here and talk about the Eagles for a little bit if you needed to? Absolutely. But you could also talk about the Lord. So that's why I use you two guys as examples because you don't have idols that are pushing God out. But we all have those things. 
stuff that you get us started. You know, I'll say sometimes, well, don't get me started talking about that. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, we should be like that about the gospel. You know, that we're, we, we just look for opportunities to be able to praise God, to be able to talk about him, to be able to share the gospel with people who seem to be interested in some way, that as they hear what has moved our hearts, I mean, Glenn can talk about, you can have, I don't know, I mean, think of something else. Somebody else might have a great love for something I have no desire for, and that's fine. I'll listen to them. But you have to understand, when you're talking about God, the Holy Spirit, we're praying, changes their hearts. So now they want to know more. They, want to, they now become fans. Terrible word to use. They now become lovers of Christ with us. And that's what happens when we're preaching the actual gospel to people. And I would challenge us all to start to um, think about how do you share the gospel? What things do you say? What is biblical versus what is culturally conditioned for us to be able to say to people as we share the gospel and evangelize people? You know, we should be evangelizing people with our, our just our lives, but also you have to use your, your words as well as to preach Christ to the world because we love God and we love our neighbor, and this is the great task of the church. So one, God has proven his love for us in Christ Jesus while we were yet helpless, godless sinners. Two, Christ's death has saved us from future wrath. And third, and finally, we are reconciled to God. Verses 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, okay, we got to stop there one second. There's another word. We are helpless, godless sinners enemies of God, not friends, not beloved, not children of, enemies of God. That's terrible. We were enemies of God. But if while we were enemies, we, again, make past tense, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So just first, you will not be reconciled to God one day as a believer. You are reconciled to God. Currently in that situation, reconciliation. And all, what reconciliation means is not just cessation of hostilities. Um, I can have somebody that's, you know I don't like, and it's like we agree to take our hands from around each other's throats and you go that way and I go this way and we'll just keep it like that. But reconciliation is we're brothers. We're hanging out. We're shaking hands and hugging. I mean, that's just like, you know, the, the best thing that can happen. And, and that we are reconciled like that to God. John Stott has this great little line in one of his commentaries. He says this, the judge has pronounced us righteous. The judge, and this is talking about God the Father too, but the judge has pronounced us righteous. The Father has welcomed us home. And it's just, that's, that's the gospel. The judge has pronounced us righteous, and the Father has welcomed us home. It's just beautiful. And that's the, sign, the, the prodigal son running away. He doesn't want the Father. He just wants the Father's stuff, and he's gone. And when he comes back, the Father 
pulls up his robes and runs to the son and says, my son who was dead is now alive, welcomes him home. He puts a ring on his finger, kills a fatted calf. Elder brother back there is all angry about it. He don't want the father either. He just wants the father's stuff. So you got to do, do I want the father? Because the father, what Jesus is saying in this parable is, he is seeking his children. And he is calling to us. And he goes after us. And when we turn to him, it is not a heavenly father's face where he's just like, whatever, come do a little bit of penance. Go work in the fields for a while and prove yourself. He runs to us because it's he who went and called us. It's he who woke the prodigal son up when he's eating with the pigs and caused him to come to himself because we've been reconciled with God. Paul gives this message of the possibility of being reconciled to God as his gospel plea to the people in Corinth in his, his second letter he writes. So just real quick, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Paul's writing to them, and he calls this, this ministry of reconciliation, this diakonos, the servanthood of reconciliation, this thing that we have. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So he's the one that did this. He's the one reconciling us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, meaning not just Jews, but Gentiles too, all those who would come to him, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's the message of the gospel. Reconciliation with God. No longer enemies, but friends, children of God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. When I was in the Baptist church, we would go to a, a, we had the RAs, royal ambassadors. That was what this was based on, the royal ambassadors. We are ambassadors. An ambassador is someone who lives in a foreign country, but represents his homeland in that country. And he represents his country to that other country. And that's what we are, representing the kingdom of God in this lost and dark and fallen, twisted generation. We are these lights. We are royal ambassadors of Christ, for Christ, making his appeal through us. We are appealing to the world to come to Christ on behalf of Christ. He's the one who calls. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's a gospel call. He's now talking to those who are either non-believers in that church or who are living outside of their faith. Uh, you know, they're, they're walking in the flesh. And he's telling them, he says, you need Christ. You need to be reconciled to God. Then he sums up this gospel he's been saying in Romans. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that therefore we have close fellowship. Invited to his table. Slide your knees beneath my table. That's reconciliation with God the Father. 
through Jesus Christ. And there's this little thing he says right in here, Romans 5 at the end. He says, now that we're rec- <clears throat> we've been reconciled by God by the death of his son, much more that we are now reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? This is that future salvation thing again. So if you think it's death did something, like if, if Jesus in his weakness on the cross is able to cause our justification and salvation, imagine what he's doing now alive at the right hand, glorified, right hand of God the Father, interceding for us with prayers. That's his work now. Jesus is alive. I mean, he's in his bodily, resurrected, glorified form. He's at the right hand of God the Father, praying for you, for us. If his death did all this, just think what his life is doing. So we we need to remember that. And then finally, verse 11, more than that, which it actually says, not only this, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Doesn't he seem to be going on a bit much about reconciliation? <laughs> he went on a lot about justification, but he's like, this is the point. It is good that you have the judge declaring you righteous, but man, you've got the Father calling you home, welcoming you home. That's why you get justified. But the real thing is this reconciliation. That's, that's the joy of it. So when you're talking to God, you're talking to somebody that's sitting there just like, I mean, I had several people in my life that I know just loved me. And I hope that you have people in your life that you know just love you as well. One was, you know, you have grandparents and things like this. And, my, and I don't, if any of them are listening, you know, I don't want to single any of them out. But I do remember at my Aunt Sarah's funeral, um, they didn't have any children of their own, and so um, she would sort of see all of her sisters, my grandmothers, my, uh, her sister's grandchildren as her grandchildren, you know, and whenever we went over there, I, I said, you know, there's a song that says, you, you never know just how you look in other people's eyes, but I said, I knew exactly how I looked in Aunt Sarah's eyes because she loved me. She just, when her face just lit up. And it wasn't just me. I mean, I'd I, I like to think I'm the only person in the entire world that makes her do that. But she's just, you know, she, the other thing I remember about her was she would fill your glass up with ice to the top and then it, it, and you have to keep filling it. I think she did it just because she liked serving you tea. I don't know. It's like I can't even get to the tea because of the ice. And she would, but she was just great. She loved us. And if you have people like that, then you know it's like when you go to their house, they're not like, oh. all right. Put on a smile, you know, put on a brave face. We'll get through this together. It's like, no, it's like sorrowful that you didn't come more. Excited that you're there. That's God the Father, even more so. Excited that you're here. Loving the fact that you've shown up. Wanting to grant your every request, but knowing better than to grant your every request. So the Holy Spirit within us prays for groanings too deep for words so that he gives us all things. He's given you his son. If he has given us his son, how will he not also give us all things necessary for faith and life? And then our problem gets to be we're just jerk kids that just don't take it. You know, my Aunt Sarah, I wish when I was, my grandmother, black, she, or my grandfather died, uh, her husband died like a couple months before I was born, and so she just grabbed me and loved me, and the other grandkids hated me for it, and I was embarrassed by it because she just lavished this extra love on me, and I just wish I'd go back and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll go try on these clothes for you again. You know, all these things that she wanted to lavish upon me, you know, it's just, 
But we do this with God where it's just we, 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 go, we go from thank you for lavishing your love on us to expecting great blessing because you are supposed to give it to me. What's your problem, God? You know, and, and thank God that we have reconciliation with him even before we're finally sanctified completely and glorified where he just looks at us in Christ Jesus and goes, I see my son in you even in, even in spite of that. And if he loves you enough, he'll take care of that <laughs> along the way in a loving way. But it's this idea that he loves us to be in his presence because that's the level of reconciliation that we have with God. The judge has declared us righteous and the father was welcome to this home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. Paul told us in chapter 5, verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, we rejoice even in our sufferings. And now here in verse 11, we're to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we received reconciliation. Lord, help us to live and walk and move and breathe in that and, and, and tell other people you can have that too in Christ Jesus. Turn to him. Set your, your heart upon Christ and he will give you the desires of your heart for your heart is set upon him. Lord, set our hearts upon you. We thank you for setting your heart upon us and pouring into us your love through the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.